Uh, good morning, TPC. My name is Will Cody, and I am the RUF campus minister here at Austin P. And when I have the opportunity to come up here and preach, we've been preaching through the book of James. James. <laughs> yeah, we all get it by now. We're in chapter four, right? Um, so James presents his readers in this book with these trials, um, these trials that all Christians experience. And today, our trial in chapter four, verses thirteen through seventeen. The trial, we could call this trial the trial of being a mere human. Um, I changed the title, actually, to You're Only Human. It's different in your bulletin, and one of the points, too, at the last minute. Uh, we'll see what this means. You're only human, and this is the trial of being a mere human. Um, we're all the way up to the, en- to the end of chapter 4. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, it's on page 1013. It'll be on the screen as well. So with faith and love to our Savior Jesus... Let's hear God speak to us from his word. James writes to us, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet do, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this text, not only understand it, but to take it down deep into our hearts and apply it to our lives, even this week. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when I was 24, I was nearing the end of my college career, and I started hearing stories about friends of friends that were living in Korea and teaching English there and having a great time, and I decided that this was going to be the next adventure, the next episode, the next chapter of my life, this great adventure. So I uh, got to work finding a job and doing all the paperwork and applying for jobs, and it was a big hassle. Uh, But as I was doing this, I was just dreaming about what it was going to be like to live in this foreign country, in this big foreign city. Um, I'd become, I'd imagine, this intrepid explorer. Um, I thought about the church that I was going to be a part of, uh, what kind of international friends I was going to have here, what the food, what the crazy food would be like over there in Korea, uh, and just all the adventures that I was going to have in Korea for this next year. And I was thinking about this so much that I completely forgot. And I mean, I completely forgot about why I was actually going there. What was the actual reason that I was going there, to be a teacher, to work. I completely forgot about that. All I was thinking about was the adventures. So after I got all the paperwork squared away, and I ended up flying to Korea, and there's this like week-long orientation, that everything was kind of an adventure. I made these expat friends very quickly. Everybody was making friends there. I ate some crazy food. Um, I got to my apartment, which was in the heart of Seoul. I could see Seoul Tower out the window of my apartment. And it was great. I was having such a great time. But then reality came crashing down on me my first day at work. So I showed up, and I'm having this meeting with all these uh, Korean teachers, these very real Korean teachers at this very real school, and there's classrooms, there's blackboards, there's chalk, and I sit down in a room with these teachers, and they start talking about lesson plans, and classroom management, and (laughs) co-teaching, and language immersion, and I'm like, wait, hold on, what's what's a lesson plan? What am I doing here? And I just, my whole world, reality came crashing down on me. Crud, I forgot that I'm actually an employee here 
And because I just imagined traipsing around Asia, riding on elephants and all that stuff. But in that meeting, I realized, no, this is, I'm here for a job. This is my, there's structure and there's limits to what is going on here. I'm, and the thing that I'm actually here for, which is to be a teacher. I had completely lost the script for what I was actual, what actual reality of life was supposed to be in Korea. So I had to like recal, I remember having to recalibrate my brain in the moment, in, the, in this meeting. This is why I'm here. <laughs> I am an elementary teacher. This is, this is going to ground me in reality in this adventure that I'm having in Korea. So the recipients in this letter, they have also lost the script. They've forgotten not only some of the basic structure and limits of what it means to be a human being, but they've also lost the script for what it looks like to trust and follow Jesus. So the, the big idea for our text this morning is that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is, in, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is in control. And if Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is in control— then we can embrace these three points for today. Three points are that if Jesus is Lord, then we can embrace the unpredictability of life. We can embrace the limitations of life. And we can embrace Jesus' will for my life. So because Jesus is Lord, we can embrace all of these things. It's going to be kind of a weird sermon, I think. Um, so first, we can embrace the unpredictability of life. James writes in verse 13, and he's writing to a community of Christians, and there were some in that community that were traders, and they were merchants, and so this is what the commentaries tell me, and so this was like the middle class and kind of upper class of, the, of this congregation, and this was apparently the attitude of some of them. He summarizes their mindset, verse 13, he's kind of like rephrasing what he's heard them say or what he's imagining them saying. He says, come now, James says to them, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So these traders and these merchants, they're planning out their year. They're making these plans to go to Antioch, uh, to go to Cyprus, maybe go to Corinth, and they're going to trade there, and they're going to do some business there, they're going to make some money, and they're going to return back home. And James is against this attitude and this planning. We'll find out why. He's against this attitude, and he's against this planning. He says in verse 16, he says, a few verses later, he says, as it is, this thing that you're saying, this mantra that you have, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting like this is evil. Now, why would James say that planning for the future is arrogant and boastful and evil? Well, when reading James, when reading anything in the Bible, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, context is king. Okay, if people know it. Context is king. You have to know the context to know what a verse is saying. You have to know the context of a of a, a paragraph to know what that's saying. You have to know in the bigger scheme of things. What's the bigger scheme of things in this section of James? As, as I've been up here the last two or three times, we've even maybe back into even chapter three, um, the big overarching theme for this section is that James has been showing all the places where we love to play God. We love to pretend and imagine that we are God. So we, for example, we think that we can read other people's minds and hearts and slander them. We play the judge and we make all these up our own rules and people have to follow these rules that we make when God is actually the judge. And people are acceptable and unacceptable or rejected because of the rules that we make up. Or we, we get to choose our idols. We get to play God and just choose our idols and let our passions want, run wild as if we're number one. And in all of these places, he's calling us to humble ourselves before the Lord. 
he says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Stop playing God and humble yourself before the actual Lord, the actual God, and he will exalt you. And so far in this text, he's been implying in James so far that he, he has been um, up, applying, he's been applying all these things to our relationships, the relationships we have with one another in the church, in families, individuals. But, and he shows how it's just, repl- our, our relationships are replete with thinking that we're God. But he's turning now to, because if this is true, that it's, this attitude is, is uh, infiltrated all of our relationships, has, hasn't it also infiltrated, James says, this, our day, if it's, if it's infiltrated our day-to-day relationships, it's also infected our day-to-day plans. It's also infected our big life plans that we have as well, right? Now, how do we play God with our plans and with the future? James says, first, that we play God in making plans without considering that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We imagine that our plans and our ideas and our desires for the future is, this is what is going to happen, and I'm going to make it happen. So we plan it, uh, we will it, we try to speak it into existence, maybe. And we think we can control the future. We think we can control our lives. But part of being a creature, being a created thing, and not God, is embracing the simple, stark reality that we cannot control the future. We cannot control what happens. We cannot make our own, we cannot make our own plans come to fruition. That's where so much frustration comes from. We don't know, James says, what tomorrow will bring. Whatever plan you've got, you know, for example, whatever plan we have here, it's kind of like the beginning of the semester for the students or, or parents or teachers. Um, whatever plans we have for the rest of this fall or maybe in your career with your job this year or uh, family plans, they might not happen. God might not like that plan or he just might not be into it. He might have something different for you. And what James is saying here is this. It's good that we are not in control. It's good that you are not God over your life. We're going to look at this a little bit more li- at the end of, of the text, of this, end of the sermon, but we can embrace, James wants us to embrace the simple fact that we are not in control, and that it's a good thing that we're not in control. And even, think about this, even before sin and death entered the world, um, you know, a lot of the things that, that change our plans are a result of the fall, but, uh, you know, a result of things falling apart that aren't supposed to happen. But even before the fall, Adam and Eve, they lived a life that they didn't know it was unpredictable as well. They lived in a world where their plans were not king either. Jesus' plans were king. And every time that our plans do not go the way that we want, boom, you're in a trial. You're in the upside-down world all of a sudden. You are in a trial every time that your dreams, your decisions, your plans do not go through. 2020, for example, was a huge trial, and it lingers today. But many of us had big plans for 2020. (laughs) But no one planned what happened in 2020. Everyone's plans got messed up there. No one knew what tomorrow would bring in 2020. How did you, how did we respond (laughs) in 2020? Did you yell at someone? Is your heart maybe even still hardened towards someone because of decisions they made or things they said during that time? What was 2020, you know, what was 2020 supposed to bring? Imagine, what was, what do you think God wanted for the church, for example, in 2020? He wanted us to come together, love each other, and love the world. But what happened? It wasn't really, that is not what happened much of the time. Did you really hate someone because they had a different opinion 
uh, of what was going on. You know, there was COVID going on. There was racism, uh, riot, um, protests, and even, I guess, riots in some places. And there was an election that maybe didn't go your way, or maybe something else. What, what, something, I know something didn't go your way in 2020. And when it became apparent that you were not getting the future you mapped out, what happened to your heart? There's at least two directions we could go, because you could either go the way of hardening your heart to God, hardening your heart against others, and resting control back, or just being angry that things didn't go my way, or was that an opportunity for you to humble yourselves before God, humble yourselves toward others, and move toward them, and just trust God that he's got us, trust Jesus that he is Lord. We're going to see a, a little bit more what this looks like at the end of our of the sermon here in our last point. But here James is calling us to embrace the unpredictability of life. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. But not only can we embrace the, uh, the unpredictability of life, but we also, James is calling us to embrace the limitations of life. It's unpredictable, and it's a bit limited. Look with me in the second half of verse 14 with me. James says, what is your life? For you're a miss." that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James is saying that whatever plans we have for our life should be grounded in this, that we are like that light morning fog. It's around for a little while, and then it disappears. Now, morning mist doesn't really do much, right? It just kind of sits there. It gets things a little damp. (laughs) It's not like a flood. He doesn't say, you know, You're a flood that comes through, and then you're gone. Or you're a wildfire that suddenly springs up, and then it's gone. Or you're a raging bull on the scene in the forest, and then you die. Um, But it's interesting he uses the word mist here. In our text uh, from Psalm 90, it spoke of us as uh, grass. We're a mist. We are limited. We are finite, both in our abilities and also in our time here. We are limited. Um, and James hits, uh, I think he's hitting, he's hitting both of these things, but he's hitting the brevity of life. He's hitting the limitations of life. We're going to focus on one of these. Because we're limited in time here and here this morning, I just want to focus on the second one, the limitations of life. James is getting at something that is hard to admit here, okay? We are finite people. We are finite creatures. When we were created, we were created with limits, You have physical limits because you're a human being. You have mental limits. You are a vulnerable person. We we like to act like we're not vulnerable, but we're all very vulnerable, and we're all frail. You need food. You need water. You need clothes. You need relationships. You need to be in vital relationships with other people, or else you wither away. And actually, it's kind of interesting. You know, the first sin was actually about transcending human limits. Have you ever thought about it this way? Remember Adam and Eve? They were tempted, what were they tempted with? They were tempted with, they were tempted by their limited knowledge. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to know good and evil. They wanted to transcend that barrier of what it means to be human. And whatever they thought uh, knowledge of good and evil was, it didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. But even the first sin was a seeking to transcend and becoming more than human. But, there's this, but here's the thing with human limitations, okay? It's okay to be human. It's okay with your human limitations are good. God made us that way. God made us limited 
human beings, mentally, physically, in all these ways that I mentioned before. We're very dependent creatures. And we are meant to embrace that many of the things in our lives are simply out of control because we're limited and because we're so dependent. Let me give a very weird example that some of y'all are going to resonate with. Um, I didn't know this until we were, Jimmy and I were expecting, but there's this weird, um, unexpected pressure when our kids were in the womb to have a perfect, natural childbirth. I don't know if any of y'all have experienced this. <laughs> but, um, but there was this guilt that comes, I don't know, it's on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that, it's probably exacerbated it. But there's this guilt that comes when, if you have a C-section, or if you have an epidural, or some other less than perfectly natural experience, that, you know, from the starting line, you know, we failed. This is, this is a second-rate birth. This is going to be a second-rate life that we're living, a second-rate life we're giving to this child or something. Uh, we've had friends that were so sad that everything wasn't perfectly natural. But where does this come from, this idea that we have control over things as complicated and even post-fall, even as dangerous as childbirth? Or that taking advantage of God-given technology, it leads to some kind of second-rate birth. Our bodies are especially limited. They're vulnerable because of the fall. And thanks be to God for things like epidurals and C-sections. It's good. There we go. All right. It's the first amen I've got besides maybe Matthew. It's good to embrace our creatureliness. It's good to embrace our creaturely limitations. Um, here's a more common one that I think most of us can get behind. Work and school. We strive to break through the barrier of our limitations. Some of it, it's the essence of your job to do this, actually. Uh, but I remember in seminary, um, someone told me one day, he said, Will, at the beginning, he said, Will, you can get all A pluses in seminary here. And, uh, well, I appreciated that he thought I could get A pluses, first of all. Uh, <laughs> uh, Will, you can get all A pluses in seminary here and still fail seminary. And what he meant by this was that um, people go to this or that seminary, they go spend a year or three here or four here, and they study and they make all A's. Like, that's their plan. Um, but if I'm neglecting these other vital areas of my life that are, I, I'm, are necessary for me as a human being, I failed. If I neglect my health, my friendships that I need in order to be human, if I neglect my wife and family to get all A's, if I re neglect my relationship with the local church or my relationship with God, in order to get all, to put all my energy into this, I have failed. I've neglected all these areas of my life that I need, first of all, and also that God has called me to, some of these. Because we're finite. We don't have unlimited energy. We don't have unlimited time. We are missed. You and I, I know this, this is, this is how 21st century America, Western culture runs. You and I are getting so many beck and calls and so many solicitations to live beyond your human limits. I had a student tell me once that for, for their parents, being ordinary, for example, being ordinary was not enough. Being ordinary was, ordinary was a bad word in their family. Like, you have to excel. You have to be the best. You have to get the best grades, whatever club you join or thing you do, you have to be the absolute best at it or you fail. There's no middle, there's no mediocre, there's no ordinary, there's no okay. It's excellent, best, number one, or fail. And let me tell you the relational, emotional, and mental havoc that was wreaked, that has been wreaked and has continued to be wreaked on this student's life. It's infected everything. Everything is infected by this because 
he, was, he or she was told to put all of their energy and be superhuman in this, and everything got messed up. James is talking about embracing your limits and being okay with a B. Being okay, gasp, with a C. <laughs> in some areas of your life. Or just opting out if you have to. Opting out of some area of your life if, as, as, you're, as you're able. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's volunteering at church. Maybe it's getting your kids to every single sports thing. Maybe it's like being there, arguing with people on Facebook and online. Like, I don't think human beings are made to like, do that. <laughs> We're not made for that. Um, and James is here to say that that is okay. This is okay. You are finite. You're a mist. You're only a human being. Now, is there anywhere in your life where you are feeling this pressure from yourself or others to act like a superhuman? You have to be the superhuman here and get all A's, when in reality, it's inappropriate to expect such things from you, a limited mortal human being. Or are there places where we're putting the expectation on, on other people to be superhuman beings? Being a limited human being is not a sin. God isn't going to ask you how natural your childbirth is at the end of the day. He's not going to look at your report card at the end of the day. He's not going to see when you clocked in and clocked out and what you did while you were there um, in terms of, like, being productive. God, would, God wants us to be faithful with what he's given us, faithful with who we are as dependent, limited creatures. James is calling us to embrace the unpredictability of life, He's also calling us to embrace the limitations of life as human beings. But he doesn't leave us there. He also calls us to embrace God's will for our lives. What do we do inside of these limitations? What, do we, what are we actually supposed to be doing inside of these limitations? Look with me in verse 15. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James wants his readers to have a new perspective based on the actual reality where we are limited creatures living in an unpredictable world. And there's good news embedded in this confession, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. First, and this can't be emphasized enough, the Lord Jesus is the one who actually wills. We can will things, and they might not happen, but when he wills things, they happen. They shall be. He is the one to, he is the one, for example, who, if he wants two walls of water and people to walk through the Red Sea, there's going to be two walls of water, and they're going to walk through the Red Sea. If there's a guy that's been dead for four years in a tomb, and he wants this guy to, to be alive, he's going to say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is going to come bouncing out like a mummy, you know, all wrapped up in his, in, in his uh, shroud. And not only this, not only is his will a shall be, his will is a shall be for you. It's for you. All, in all the unpredictability of life and all the limitations that we face from being human and also results of the fall, he is for you. Now, if I were you, I'd be asking the question, how do we know this? How do we know? How can I be sure that I can trust this? Because this is a big deal. If there's a guy in heaven <laughs> and he's for me and he's done all these things and he claims to do this for me too, to be there for me and all the disasters of life, and all the unpredictability of life, and all the limited issues with my body, and the rest of me. How can I know that this is true? Well, let me, uh, I'm going to ask a different question, okay? There's a pop quiz, okay? 
How many wills, I'm going to drill down on this, how many wills does, I know my name is Will, which is kind of weird, uh, how many wills does Jesus have? We know that Jesus is one man, and he has two natures, right? Jesus is fully God, he is fully man. How many desires or wills is, are flowing through him? I want to drill down on this for a second. Um, I'm one man, and I have lots of conflicting desires. <laughs> I have lots of conflicting uh, wills inside of me that are going on at the same time. But how many wills does Jesus have? If you've never heard this before, just hold on first. Just hold it. Just hold it with me for a second. Um, any guess how many wills Jesus has? I would have said one, too. I would have said one as well. <laughs> but it's actually two. He has two wills. Actually, in, in Presbytery, several Presbyteries ago, someone... Uh, seminarian got this wrong, an ordinarian got this wrong. Jesus has two wills, okay? He has a divine will emanating from his divine nature, and he has a human will emanating from his human nature. We see this, for example, in John 6, uh, 38. Notice what's happening in terms of wills here. He's saying, I have come down from heaven not to do, talking to the people, talking about his father, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus' human will here is always submitting to the will of the Father, always submitting to the divine will. But something excruciating happened. Every time, all the time that he was on earth, even now, he's, his human will is always subject and submitting to the divine will, to God's will. But something um, excruciating happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus was like hours, he was minutes away from being arrested and being taken to the cross, to be crucified, this terrible death. And here's what he says. He speaks of his coming death in terms of drinking this cup of wrath, this Old Testament imagery of, of drinking this cup of wrath. And Jesus says, my father, this is from Matthew 26, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus had, has, his own human will, and here at this moment at Gethsemane, he did not want to do the divine will. He did not want to go to the cross. He did not want to face the wrath of God. He did not want to taste death. But why did Jesus go? Why did he submit himself, even though he didn't want to? Why did he submit his will to the Father? It was because it was the only way to save you. He says, if it's possible, and it was not possible. The only way for him to save you was to go to the cross and die for you. He, when he made this decision, he was thinking of you. He was, he put, you put yourself in this position where you deserve God's judgment and wrath, and Jesus said, I'm going to go and take the place for him. I'm going to go take the place for her. His will was to save you. His will was to take your place. His will was to drink down the cup of wrath of God for you so that you don't have to. All the way to the end, all the way to the dregs, all the way till he died. His will is for you. Here's, you can see it right here. His will is for you. No matter what happens, his will is for you. His whether, whether his will is parting the Red Sea, whether his will is to um, go to the cross for your sins, whether his will is to raise you from the dead, this is the king who we humble ourselves before, and he is worth it. He is worth submitting yourself to him. His will is what shall be, 
for you. This is the king that we submit ourselves to, the king who died for you, who looked at death and said, I will take death for Will Cody. But there's, an, there's another sense here in verse 15 when it says, if the Lord wills, um, what the Lord, we, this means what shall be, what God wants to happen, will happen. It also means what the Lord wants to happen in and through me and in and through us. So asking the question from my side, what does he will for me? Like, it, like what is my boss's will for me to do? I'm going to do that. What is the king's will for me to do? I will do that. Now, if the Lord desires and wants me to do this, what is going to be my response? What does Jesus want from us? Let me give two examples that come kind of from our two points. Um, when your plans fall apart, whether it's uh, vacation plans, job plans, plans for your children, election plans, plans to be married, uh, plans, school plans, Jesus wants you to trust him. He's got you. He's got you. He died for you. He is all-powerful, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's got you. He's got you. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which we read earlier, um, he's speaking to people for whom it was questionable whether they were going to eat tomorrow. It was questionable whether they're going to have water to drink tomorrow. It's questionable whether they're going to have clothes to wear tomorrow. And he says to people like that, have lives like that, they're on the brink. He tells people like this. He says to them, he says to them, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, food, water, clothing, they're going to be given to you as well. He's saying, trust me and do what I'm asking you to do and I'm going to take care of you. I got you. No matter what the unpredictability of life looks like, no matter what the limitations of life look like for you, Jesus wills to give you everything that you need and we just trust him and obey him and do what he says in the unpredictability of life so first we trust him in all the unpredictability of life that he's got us and so we can trust him and obey him secondly you are a limited person and within these limits of your time of your energy of your mind of your body and some of us are more much more limited than others in our body i'm starting to get there as a finite human being, where has God actually put you? Like, not what you imagine you can do, not what you wish to be as a superhuman or super Christian, superhuman Christian, um, not living in the shadow of some other Christian um, who seems to be doing amazing things, who has a completely different story in a completely different context. Forget about them. Um, not carrying the burden of comparing yourself to someone you've seen on social media who seems to be doing all these amazing things. Where is God actually put you to love others as Jesus has loved you. And that pouring out of himself and loving others, where has God put you in time and space and relationships? Um, for right now, it might be primarily the little ones that are in your home. That's amazing. Changing diapers, you're going to get rewarded for that in heaven. I guarantee it. Um, it might be the people that God has put in your life at work to love them. That's great. It might be people at your school. As the semester starts, if anybody here, if anybody here is in an actual school, um, loving the new people that come, into your, uh, that come into your school, finding the new person and greeting them and making them feel like, making the outsider feel like an insider. That's what Jesus does to us. We're outsiders and he brings us in. What does it look like in your particular situation to love other people and pour yourself out? I think, and it's so ordinary. That's the thing. It's ordinary, limited Christian life. 
Um, I think one of the biggest distractions to actual Christian life, one of them, is this, under, this crushing expectations, this undercurrent that you hear in certain circles. I don't think this is from here, but for, hear from different, the ether, the Christian ether out there, that uh, the Christian life is this extreme, radical thing that we're all going to change the world for Jesus or even change Clarksville for Jesus or something like this. But here's what Paul is telling the church when he writes to them in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's, here's a beautiful, ordinary life. This is a beautiful, ordinary life that God is pleased with. I'll, I'll read this here. <clears throat> Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So what's he saying? He's saying, live a radical life. Go big for God. He totally is, but not the way that we might be hearing it. He's saying what this looks like, what the radical Christian looks like, it, radical Christian life looks like, is loving one another, loving others, living a quiet life, minding your own beeswax, <laughs> and working whether in the home or outside of the home. This is the beautiful life right here that God is pleased with. Um, CPC, this week, where is, somewhere that, where is somewhere in your life where you cannot take it? If this thing fails, if the unpredictability of, of this fails, where is, someone that, where is somewhere that we're going to be tempted to curse God and curse others? Where is somewhere... In your lim where, where is somewhere that you are trying to live like a superhuman when you're actually a limited human being? Maybe just naming that for once would be huge for some people. Just naming, this is not healthy. This is not good. And maybe you can't do anything about it in the moment because the U.S. military owns your body or something. But think, like, where is one place where you are living outside of reality, outside of humanity? This week, CPC, let's embrace the unpredictability of life, embrace our limitations, and seek Jesus' will for our lives. Where's one place, one person that we, God has put in our lives to love them? Let's pray. Father, we pray you would help us uh, in this um, radical, in some, some ways, very radical text that we are merely human beings. Would you help us to see those places that are unpredictable, that we think are predictable, and we put our trust in you? Would you help us to see and know our limitations at least name them and see them so that we can live a life that is pleasing to you. And would you show us places even this week where you have put us in people's lives to love them as you've loved us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.